You are listening to an audio from Redemption City Church. If you would like to explore more resources or donate to this ministry, go to www.visitredemptioncc.com. Hi, my name is Brandon, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption City Church, and we're so excited that you're gathering with us today via video or audio for the Word of God. And we always have this one ask of anyone who's listening, and that's that you would test every single thing in this sermon, no matter who's preaching today, by the Word of God, because we believe the Word of God is infallible, and it is perfect, and ultimately it gives you everything you need to become more like Jesus. And so that comes out of the scriptures of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Now, we want to keep acknowledging that we are living in a pandemic right now of COVID-19. And so you may be in between churches, you may have been disconnected to your church, and we want to invite you to be a part of this season with us. Now, though we primarily lead, preach, and teach for our local body as prescribed and described in the Bible, we understand that we have a unique opportunity and a really awesome responsibility to preach the Word of God to every single ear and soul that wants to hear this message. So if that's you and you're out of state, we are so happy you're with us. And we pray that whoever is listening would hear a encouraging, redemptive, healing, and transformative word today. Grace and peace. We are in the Ephesians series. It's legit. Let's go. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's open them up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to jump right into the text in just a little bit. As we continue forward in this series titled Our Story into God's Story, I just want to remind you that this series is all about discovering who you are in light of Christ. And now we're learning what are we now called to do with our lives? How do we get active and how do we do great things? for God's kingdom. Now, here's going to be our aim. It's been our faithful aim since part one of this series. It's going to remain our aim to the end of this series, no matter who you are, no matter if you've been studying the word of God your entire life, or if this is the first time you're opening up this Bible. We believe, I believe, that you can have a living encounter with the God of the universe like you've never had before if you lean in today with an open heart and a soft mind. Amen. So last week in part one, titled The Postcard of the Shoulds and the Should Nots of Life, we learned that sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. It's actually forbidden because it's bad. Like God isn't sitting up high in heaven on his throne saying, don't do this and don't do that and don't do this and don't do that. This is bad. This is forbidden. But rather, God looks at things here, right? And he looks at and he says, this thing is going to separate you from me. And it's going to cause havoc and wreak havoc on your life. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt others. Therefore, in my infinite love and wisdom, I'm going to call that what it is. And it's called sin. And I'm going to forbid that, right? We also learn that sin isn't described in the Bible and talked about loudly throughout the Bible because God wants to stop us from having the time of our lives. Like he's not out to get Christians and make us not be happy, but rather sin is described and talked about all throughout scripture because the God of the universe wants us to have the time of our lives now and forever in eternity with him. We learn that Jesus came to give life and to give life abundantly. And his primary way of making sure that the people of God have life abundantly is by making sure that we understand the importance of purity and our righteousness. But there's an adversary, and we learn that Satan came to take life and to take life violently. And his primary way of doing that is by activating sin all throughout our lives. We learn that there are three most definite truths of life, and God and our part in it. Remember that? Number one, we learned that we are most definitely not God, right? God does the work, right? We are not God. God created everything. We don't create anything. God is the creator. We are the creation. But number two, we learned that God has most definitely called us to be his hands and his feet in the world. We looked at that and we filleted that open. And then finally, we learned that someone is most definitely waiting for us on the other side of our story. And as we step out of our story into God's story and we live in the redemptive grace of God. God gets to work in us so we can get to work in his kingdom purposes and we get to be a great 
kingdom ambassador for his purposes. We learned that the first half of Ephesians chapter 5 contains really six things that we are called to really start doing in our activities as Christians, and there's six things that we are warned to stop doing as we walk as Christ followers. And so today we're going to be leaning into that and learning as we move out of this kind of postcard of the 3,000-foot aerial view and we're finally walking boots on the floor, walking around the proverbial streets of chapter 5. We're going to really camp out right now in verses 1 through and 7. And that really brings us to today to part 22 titled Becoming True Imitators of God. And I want you to know that we are continuing to embark upon some life-changing context in Scripture, right? And we're going to be looking at some life-changing content in Scripture as we continue to see what Paul says life is supposed to look like for us as believers. Okay, so so here we go. Paul's shooting massive theological shots. He's informing the church of Ephesus, which means he's informing me and he's informing you and he's saying, hey, you're saved now. And that's so legit. Like, like once we were so dead to rights, but now we're alive. We were so lost, but now we are alive. Like, remember, in chapters 1 through 3, we're learning about our entire identity in Christ, the preciousness of that, how we are saved and adopted and redeemed and forgiven and sealed forever. We're given this beautiful inheritance. And now from chapter 4, moving now into chapter 5, he's segueing and he's saying, hey, with all this identity that you have, and because you're so secure and you're so stable, we're called to do all these new activities in Christ. And with these new activities, it leads to a new destiny. Like we as the people of God get a new destiny. How incredible is that? Now, even though each and every one of us aren't perfect, we aren't perfect, aren't you just so impressed and so thrilled with how far God has taken you compared to where you were before Christ was in you. Like, I know that I am because I remember who I was and where I was when I was without Christ. And it just humbles me every single time I think about that. Like, what about you? Do you remember who you were before Christ? And more importantly, who are you now with Christ? So here's my starting question. Have your activities changed because of your new identity in Christ as compared to what they were like before him? I want you to take a moment. I want you to circle what sounds true right now in your heart. Like, have, have you changed tremendously? Have you changed moderately? Or do you barely see a change at all? Okay, so here's the next question. Would others close to you agree with your previous answer by their own witness of your life? I want you to circle that right now. This is important. If other people were looking at you, and they, would they have the same answer, those who are close to you, as you just gave about yourself? Now, you see, the answers to both of those questions that you just gave is going to be very, very important as we move forward in today's sermon. Here's why. Because Paul isn't speaking to us like some employer talking to some employees, but rather he's talking to us like a brother engaging with the siblings. Folks, this is family talk. And all of a sudden, things get really, really serious and really, really active in the Word of God here in chapter 5. You know, there's oftentimes in our lives where we look at Scripture and we say, man, we just love, love the Bible. And it's really convenient that we love the Bible and we love going to church and we love engaging in sermons when we're doing right in Christ, isn't it? But then there's those other times when we're being a little bit defiant in our relationship with God and we're not leaning in to the things that Scripture is saying and then all of a sudden we're not as open to experiencing what God has for us in the Word of God. We often will say to ourselves, I don't want to interact with my Bible right now. I don't really want to lean in to this next hour of the sermon because if I really do, I, I fear that God is going to start asking me to stop doing some things in my life that I know I need to stop doing, and he may just start calling me to start doing some things that I've put off for a while. 
And that's often what hinders us and stops us from leaning into what God has for us. Therefore, let me say this again slowly. The Lord blesses you and the Lord blesses me with godly conviction in his word. Yes, he does. And when God does the work in his scripture and that godly conviction comes to you, it won't lead to shame. And it's not going to lead to regret, but rather it leads to transformation and healing. Because you see, God sees what's coming down the road for you and me. And he sees the impending issues that are going to arise. He sees the havoc down the road without his intervention. And he doesn't want that for you. And he doesn't want that for me. And he doesn't want us walking in the quicksand of our hopelessness, despair, and regret. So we get this glorious opportunity. It's not a burden, but this glorious opportunity to respond to the conviction of the word of God today that he brings to our heart. And so when God's word tells us today that we should stop doing some things or God's word tells us that we need to start doing some things, I want you to get so excited about that, right? I want you to get so excited about that because this is our God really loving us as his children. So with that being said, let's prepare to dive deep into Ephesians chapter 5. And now we're, again, not on the postcard. We're walking around the city, and we're going to camp out right here from verses 1 through verses 7. So let's read that, then let's pray, and then let's get all nitty-gritty in there. Here we go. Verse one, therefore, what's this therefore about? Therefore, because of everything that's happened, because of your identity in Christ, because you're sealed and adopted and redeemed and, and you've received this new inheritance and you are secure, you're so stable. Therefore, therefore, because you are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, but you are to become all that God's called you to be. Therefore, because God, remember, he right died on the cross and he descended into hell for three days, but he, he had no sin, so, so hell couldn't keep him there. So he rose out of the grave and what happened? He started giving out all these gifts, right? We learned that in part 17, all these gifts. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Okay, so in verse one, what we see is that God is calling us to be imitators as his children. So the question is this, are you being an imitator of God in the things you're doing? Like, are the way you live and the things you do lining up with what God would be asking you to do? That's some, that's some food for thought. Verse 2 says, it goes on, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, your life is going to be marked by activities that are filled with love, offering, and sacrifice. And it's going to be all for God. And so are you walking like that, brother? Are you walking like that, sister? Would Jesus come back right now and say, man, your life is marked by activities of love? But it goes on, and I love how he does it. So Paul says, hey, you got to love, but then there's a but. Love, but sexual immorality and all impurity and or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. So here Paul is speaking loudly against all types of sexual impurities and sexual relationships and covetousness. And covetousness means demanding and desiring things that ultimately don't belong to you. He's saying, hey, you got to walk in love. You got to imitate God, but you cannot be associated with these things. They're not even to be named among you. It goes on in verse four. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Wow, that, that's, that's so much there. So Paul's saying, hey, watch out for the filth. Watch out for the foolish talk. Watch out for these things that are unholy. They're going to ruin your life. Like, did you know that dirty jokes and dirty lyrics and dirty videos are all gateway drugs? to dirty living. I'm going to say that again. Dirty jokes and dirty lyrics and dirty videos and dirty talking are gateways to dirty living. But I love that he says, instead of doing those things, be filled with thanks 
giving. We're going to be talking about that in a real way today. Verse 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, immoral or impure or, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, things are getting very serious now. Here, Paul is warning us that if we continue on in these ways, we're not entering the kingdom of God. Are you tracking? We have no inheritance. This is weighty. And we're going to be talking about this at the end of the sermon today. And I promise we will not run away from this text. And then it finishes up in verse 6 and 7. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. And so essentially, Paul's saying here, watch out for those who try to deceive you with empty promises. Like they're bringing the wrath of God upon themselves. And they're going to bring the wrath of God upon you if you fall into that temptation. And you'll slowly become a son of disobedience. We have to watch out for those who we are imitating. We want to be imitating Christ. My God, this is the convicting, healing, transformative Word of God. So let's pray with great expectation that every ounce of God's Word today would convict our hearts and open our minds so that we might become more like Christ. That's a great aim. Let's bow our heads faithfully and let's pray. Abba Father, my God, as we study your Word, we pray that it will become a light to our path and that it would become illumination for our feet, and that in Jesus' name, you would use it to direct us and correct us and reprove us and instruct us in such a way that every man and every woman will be thoroughly equipped with every good work from God. We pray that this living word would have access to the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, and that you would do in power what only you could do. Make us clean, O oh God, holy people filled with grace and love and godly conviction. I pray that every man and woman today would acknowledge that they are not perfect, but that there is hope in you. I pray that each person would admit that you are absolutely right at everything you say and everything you do as our Lord and Savior and Father. And that we, God, are absolutely wrong at everything that we say and that everything that we do that is contrary to your word, according to your scripture. No more excuses, Lord. We don't want to make excuses. Therefore, make our hearts pliable through anointed words spoken today that are palpable. And may you open our minds to the mysteries of your will. And it's because of your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's look right now at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and let's start to fillet this thing open. Here it is, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now I tell you what, I love, 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 and I think we all love, love, love God's word, right? That is when we're walking with him. We love his word when we're walking with him. Like we love to be reminded of how good we are and how, how good we are and how special we are and how valuable we are and how stoked God is about us. And it's true. We are so special and so valuable in the kingdom. And you know why we know that? Because God's word cuts through the lies of hatred, fear, and insecurity. And it reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's a beautiful thing. But you know what else is true? The Word of God says that God's Word is like a double-edged sword. So it not only cuts to the lies of our insecurities and our fears and our shame and reminds us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, it also cuts to the lies of pride, dismissiveness, and our rebellion. It reminds us that there's some things that we have got to remove out of our lives now that we are in Christ. We have a new identity. We have new things now. we got to remove some things. And it also reminds us that we have to start to do some things because of our new identity in Christ. And the Bible also says there's some things that we need to start activating that are going to be difficult for us. But as we continue to say no, no, no to the old man, we become more, more, more 
like Jesus. And that's what it means, folks, to become an imitator of God. It's to denounce our old life, and it's to step into, radically into, our new life. You know, uh, Paul had a beautiful exhortation to young Timothy about this himself. Let's look at that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Here's what the word of the Lord said. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Wow. Can you imagine that? All scripture <sighs> comes from the mouth of God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That, that's powerful. That means that everything in the scriptures, everything that we see, everything that we know, hey, it's for our good. It's not for our bad. It's for our good. That's why we have to believe by faith that when God is calling us to do things, that is radically leading into joy and satisfaction for our life. And when God is telling us to forbid for, forbid for some things, is to stop us from ending in a way that leads to regret and shame. And then Paul goes on, he tells little to me this. Let's look at this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. He says, hey, 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 Timmy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Watch verse 3. It's weighty. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itchy ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And I think that's just so important for us to keep in a frame of reference as we walk now into Ephesians chapter 5. Like, are you seeing what the text is saying right here? Like, hey, hey, we're living in that time that Paul was exhorting to Timothy, where we as a culture, we don't want to endure sound teaching. Oh my gosh, all you have to do is look at the Christian culture right now. We want everything to fit our narrative and how we want life to be, how we want relationships to be, how we want our finances to be, how we want church to be. And Paul's saying, watch out for that. Watch out for the season where everybody is hearing what they want to hear so it suits their own passion. But as for you, and I believe that means Paul's saying, and as for us, hey, let's be sober-minded as we are interacting with the Word of God. And the first thing that God says is to be imitators of Him. Listen, my number one goal as a father is when I'm raising Aiden and Aubrey, my two kids, is to convince them and to compel them that what me and Jillian are telling them is right and is good and is true for their life in such a manner that they would want to imitate me and, me and mom, right? Well, in that same way, God's word is seeking to convince us by a truth and light and to compel us by truth and light that we would want to imitate him too. Like, pay attention, God's word is very clear. It's very clear. But we are living in a society that's making it easier and easier to not take God's word seriously. You see, our American culture is preaching that the Bible's old and it's archaic and, and, and they're trying to downplay the severity of the things that God is saying are massively important for our lives. And then we start to invite this eternity-robbing logic that comes in our mind. You hear what I said? It's an eternity-robbing logic. It starts to seep into the crevices of our mind. And we start saying these irrational things like this. Does, does, does God really know what's best for me? Like, is he really got my best interests? Like, does he really know what, what, what I need to do for my finances? Like, that's kind of like 2,000 years ago. Like, does he understand the economics of, of, of American culture? Like, does he really know what's best for how I do my relationships? And does he really know that what I need to do in my sexual relationships? But here's the truth, faith family. God created sex. God created relationships. And God most definitely created finance. He's the director and he's the producer of all of these realities. And he has great 
plans for you when it comes to sex and finances and relationships. But in order for us, hey, lean in, in order for us to step into those great plans, we have to first believe radically that his plans are always right and that our plans are always, always wrong if they do not line up with his word. We can no longer stand comfortably in conflict with God's word. Are you tracking with me? We can't do that. Now, speaking of sexual relationships and sexual sin, let me show you what Proverbs has to say about sexual sin. This is a beautiful exhortation. Let's see this. It's weighty. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 through 28. Here it goes. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? Like, we all know the answer to that, right? Like, no, no way. Because, let's just keep it real. If, if we try to hug fire, we're going to get burned. We're going to get burned real bad, aren't we? And, and that's how it is with our sin. Hey, when we are trying to hug and play nice with the sin in our lives, we're going to get spiritually burned bad really bad and it's going to we're going to develop great wounds and we're going to develop great scars in our lives and our heavenly father doesn't want that for us and that's what proverbs is communicating it's saying hey we got to be imitators of god that's what verse one's saying hey be like christ imitate christ do what christ would do what would jesus do in your finances what would jesus do in your relationships and what would jesus do in your sexual experiences and we have to lean into that and not play nice with fire. So this is a perfect time for me to introduce to you right now this important theological perspective as we're looking at being an imitator of God and how do we look through things and how do we submit to God's word. This is an important time for me to introduce a theological perspective regarding scripture, okay? And it's a concept referred to as the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And we really want to camp out here for a second because this is going to be so important for you to now mature as a Bible-believing Christian and how you walk in your new identity in Christ. So let's talk about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And I'm going to try to break this down to you in the most simplistic way that I could, creating definitions for you pastorally. Okay, so here we go. Here's the letter and the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is the what of the law. You with me? It is very plain and generic and direct and straightforward. And it's, it's kind of cold, right? It's, it's cold. It's just straightforward. It's the law. It's like the American law. Don't break the speed limit. 35 miles per hour. You break it, you get a ticket. It's just the law. Okay, the spirit of the law is the why of the law. You see, it tells us why we are to do the things that the letter of the law is commanding us to do. Are you tracking with me? It's the intention of the law. Okay, so the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law is an idiomatic antithesis. And this, this basically means that when one is obeying the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law, one is obeying the literal interpretation of the words of the law, but they're not embodying the intent. You tracking with me? Come on, I know this is deep. We're gonna be student learners today. They're not, they're not embodying the intent of those who wrote the law. Now, now you're saying, Pastor Brandon, why is all this important? It's radically important. Hey, pay attention, lean in with me. Because God is calling us to know, to know and obey and to imitate. Remember verse one, we're still there. Be imitators of Christ. How do we do that? We have to do that by imitating what he's saying to do in scripture. And God is calling us to know, obey, and imitate the letter and the spirit of the law. Like, um, I used to live in California, and I had a camp called Camp Jericho. I was the director and the owner of this camp. And it was about 100 kids who would come to experience amazing in a faith-based camp. That was our slogan. And so we would go often to this little river lakeside. And at this river lakeside, there were these buoys out, and they had this big sign that said, do not go past the buoys. If you're caught going past the buoys, you would be not allowed to be in this national park anymore. 
And that was the letter of the law. It was cold. It was direct. Don't go past the buoys. If you do, you will be kicked out of the park. There's danger, right? That's what it was. It, it was. it was direct. It was harsh. It was straightforward. And it was cold. But you see, it was the spirit of the law that was ultimately the thing that is motivating to us, right? What was the spirit of the law of that? It was like this. This is what the spirit of the law was in South Lake Tahoe. And it was saying this, hey, you got to respect these buoys. Hey, Brandon, you're the director and the founder of this camp. If your kid campers go past this buoy, there are massive currents that are under this water and they have a high risk of being carried downstream and ultimately dying. And, and if that happens, your camp is going to be closed. You're going to be in lawsuits for the rest of your life. You're going to ruin your own family. And most importantly, life would have been taken. Therefore, the intent of that law was to preserve life and to maintain safety for all campers. You tracking with me? Now, here's the thing. We, as the people of God, have to adhere to both. We have to adhere to the letter of the law, namely what God says to do. Do this, don't do this. Go do this, go do that. But we also have to listen and understand the spirit of the law. Are you with me? You see, it's the letter of the law that we have to radically obey by faith. But lean in. It's the spirit of the law. It's the intention of our Father that we as his children need to understand and grasp so that we can last Hebrews chapter 12 and run our race to the end. I can't tell you how many Christians start off out the gates, obeying and obeying and obeying, but they have no maturity to understand why God is calling them to do things. I want us to grow as a people that know that there are certain things we are called to do, and there are certain things we are to avoid, and we are to know our Father's heart in them so that we can do them not for a season, before a lifetime because God our God has already went to great lengths to save you and to adopt you as his children so listen you got to be and I got to be so careful and we got to be so attentive as imitators of the things that he's calling us to imitate that's why he's being so intentional in warning us to be careful with sexual sin in the verses to come we're going to see that in just a little bit in a little bit in fact proverbs 6 <laughs> says that a man and a woman that commits adultery this right here a man and a woman who commits adultery or any kind of sexual sin actually allows their soul to be destroyed are you kidding me you don't want to play around with that your soul is on the line it destroys the very fabric of your nature. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't always been perfect in this area of my life. I haven't. And I've definitely experienced how sexual sin destroys holiness and wholeness in God. Listen, what the Bible says about who we are as men and as women regarding our sin is absolutely true. You just got to accept that. So as I continue to preach today's sermon, all I'm asking you to do today is that you continue to proclaim over your life that whatever the Bible says is true. Just, just, just submit to that. Like, I, I don't need you to promise to be perfect, but I need you to declare over your life that you have bents. I have bents. Say, I have bents. I have bents to faulty ideas, Pastor Brandon. And I got bents to perversions, Pastor Brandon. Just acknowledge that. And then I want you to ask that the Holy Spirit might move you forward in this sermon. Maybe he's going to move you forward differently than the next person next to you. But would you ask the Holy Spirit to move you forward wherever you're at right now in your relationship with God? Okay, so think deeply with me through this, this kind of analogy so we can keep understanding how we are to be imitators of God and, and, and why he establishes all these boundaries and, and, and realities to protect us as we become imitators as his children. You know, it kind of reminds me of, uh, of a young man named Benjamin, you see, and, he, and Benjamin grew up in a Christian home, and his parents were really faithful, and they had lots of boundaries. In fact, Benjamin was 17 years old in high school, and his parents said his curfew to be home every day, Monday through Friday, was 4 p.m., and you see, Benjamin hated that, and on the weekends, his curfew was to be home by 8 p.m., 
And the reason why Benjamin hated that is because his best friend, Michael, he always got to stay out and he had no boundaries. He could stay out as late as he wanted to. And Benjamin was always frustrated and saying, why do I have so many restrictions? Why can't I experience the freedom that Michael has? You see, all Ben could see was what he perceived as Michael having freedom. Uh, let me show you like this. He, here's what he was perceiving from Michael. He perceived that Michael's parents didn't really care that Michael got to date around experienced girlfriends in high school, that his teenage years and his young adult time was about exploring. Benjamin's parents said, that's not what you get to do. You're not going to date a bunch of girls. We don't want you to do that. We want you to focus on your schooling. But he didn't understand that because Michael got to do all that. You see, you see, what he saw was that Michael's parents didn't care if he had girls in his room and if they slept over. And why couldn't he do those type of things? Why does Michael get those freedoms? You see, Benjamin didn't understand that. Why did Michael's parents, how come they don't care that he doesn't come home at a certain time at night? Like, Mom, I listen to you. Dad, I listen to you. This is what Benjamin's saying. And I have to be home at 8. But Michael gets to do whatever he wants to do. All my friends get to do whatever they want to do. You know, all we saw was that Michael's parents didn't care if he drank a little bit and had a little bit of fun. After all, you're young and you only get to live one time. You see, oftentimes growing up as teenagers, but even now, let's be honest, for us as adults, when we see people having this perceived freedom that we feel we don't have anymore as Christians, we get jealous. Let's just call it what it is. We go, man, why can't I have that freedom? In fact, Benjamin was probably thinking, if only my parents were as cool as Michael's parents. But here's what I would say to Benjamin. And here's what I would say to anyone leaning in today who perhaps feels that at times in your walk with Jesus. I would say this, Benjamin's parents cared for him and Michael's parents did not care enough. Let me show you the reality of Michael's situation. You see, Michael's parents didn't care that he dated around and experienced girlfriends in high school. They didn't care that and, and allowed his teenage years to be a time to explore in all kinds of dangerous things. You see where it's bold? Michael's parents, they, they, they didn't care if he had girls in his room or if they slept over. Michael's parents didn't care when he came home at night, and Michael's parents didn't care if he drank a little bit and had some fun. Like, can you see better now? The implications of Michael's parents was that they didn't care enough. Like their lack of attention and focus and boundary settings and warnings revealed they didn't care enough about him to set him up for success and wholeness. But Benjamin's parents, they radically cared. And they cared by setting boundaries and limits and expectations and curfews and safety. And all of it was for Benjamin's joy and, pers and prosperity so that he would be preserved. What Benjamin didn't understand is, hey, here, here's the spirit of the law. Benjamin, you got to come home by four because we want to set you up to be focused on your school so that your life is set up in the future. Hey, Benjamin, you can't have girls in your room in high school because you're still developing and you are going to save yourself. We want you to save yourself so that you can have one wife in the future and you don't bring much pain into that relationship. You see, there was a spirit of the law that was behind the letter of the law. And what Benjamin has to grasp is the intention of his parents so that he can joyfully walk out the letter of the law that his parents were prescribing. And this is the way that our heavenly father cares for us. You tracking? He places spiritual boundaries and curfews and consequences in place to set us up for success and spiritual health. You got to know that. And what I so love about our God is that the first activity he says, he could have said anything. The first activity he says in scripture is he calls us to focus on him as imitators of him. Like, isn't that cool? Hey, hey, the first thing I want you to do, verse one, be an imitator of me. Imitate Christ. Be like me. Like, <laughs> did you know that we are all imitating somebody? Every one of us are. Nobody's exempt. Like each and every one of us are the sum total of being imitators of a multitude of influences throughout 
our lives. <laughs> Here's the good news. The good news is that the Bible promises for the Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian that one day when we finish our race with Jesus, we're going to be like him. Imago Dei. We're going to be in the image of God, imitating him, and that's where our story ends, and that's a beautiful promise. So here we go. So whatever you love, and whatever you worship, and whatever you're focusing your time on, whatever you're imitating, you're going to become more and more like that person or that thing. So people of God, be careful who you're listening to. Be careful who you're imitating because whether you know it or not and whether you like it or not, you are becoming more and more like them. So be careful that your time and your focus and your worship is casted on Christ and those who are pursuing Christ radically so that your life lines up with the God of the universe. So who are we? We are a people called to be imitators of God as we engage in certain activities that glorify him and increase our joy while reframing from other activities that dishonor him and cause us pain. We are to do this, excuse me, we are to do this by trusting in all of scripture that is breathed out by God to make each of us complete. We are to be joyful children that adhere to both the letter of the law of God's scripture, motivated by the spirit of the law that it is founded upon. That is good news. Let's, let's look at verse 2 now. Okay, so we are to be imitators of God. How do we do that? And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, okay, so this is pretty much a no-brainer. You are a Christian now. You are bumper bowling for Jesus. Like, he doesn't want you in the gutters anymore. No more striking. No more striking out. We are to live in the lane with Christ, and he's going to walk us. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to go like this. We're going to go like this, but we're not to live in the gutters anymore because we have a new identity. So with this rock-solid confidence that comes from our identity in Christ, that we are now saved and redeemed and forever sealed because God, through his Son, has lavished upon us all these great gifts, we got to start walking in love. We are free from being angry and wrathful people, and we are to walk in love. It's not just our actions that are important to God. You tracking? It's our actions that are rooted in Christ's love. So when Paul exhorts us to walk in love, it is literally a direct command from Jesus that's saying, no matter what occurs in your life, walk out love, no matter what. We are called to love despite when people are gossiping behind our backs. Are you tracking with me? It doesn't matter if someone's gossiping behind your back. We are called to love them anyway. We are called to love people despite when they fall short. We are called to love our spouses even when they fall short. And we feel that they have not met our expectation or they've somehow dropped the ball in this relationship. We're called to love our spouses anyway. We are called to walk in love despite when our children disrespect us and disregard us and go, uh, and go in the wrong direction. In Christ, we're called to walk in love. We are called to walk in love despite when we are cheated out of things that we have earned in our work, in our school, and in life. We're called to walk in love despite when we experience those adversities. And we are called to walk in love despite our disappointments and our hurts that we experience from family and in our churches. We are called to walk in love. You see, verse 2 is communicating loudly that no matter what occurs in life, the genuine Christ follower is resolved to walk in love. Like, hear me out. The same way that your child gets to school, no matter what, it doesn't matter if there's an accident on the road, it doesn't matter if there's construction on the road, you get your child to school, don't you? Hey, and just like when you're going to work and there's construction on the road or there's a terrible accident on the road, you find a way to get to work. And we, as the people of God, must have that same no-excuse posture when it comes to walking out in love. Like, you have to, we, what do we do when we're in that situation trying to take our kid to school? We find an alternate route, or we wait patiently in line until we can ultimately get to our destination. 
And the same thing happens in our walking in love. We have to sometimes take detours and walk around different avenues and be patient, but we must end whatever the situation is, no matter how hard it is, in love. Faith family, because of what Christ has done in our lives and because he loved us when we were unlovable, we're called to walk in love. And if you've ever been confused about how to do that, and you're saying, Pastor Brandon, how, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, walk in love, how do I do that? You never have to go far than to look to our Savior in Jesus. So let's read verse 2 again, and let's see this right here. And walk in love, how? As Christ loved us. That's big. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So he loved us and gave himself up. He sacrificed it all. And it was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Like, can't you see? Jesus came into a world that radically rejected him and persecuted him. Like, Jesus came into a world that spit in his face, yet he instantly forgave us anyway. Like, remember this? Jesus washed his disciples nasty, dirty, smelly, no Nike technology-wearing feet, despite the fact that they were going to betray him. He walked in love. Like, he went to the woman at the well who had over five husbands, and he walked in love. Like, it's really easy to love people who love us back, right? That, like, that, that's really easy. But how much more difficult is it to love someone that you consider unlovable or difficult to love? In fact, when Jesus was preaching and teaching on the Sermon of the Mount, he said that even sinners know how to love people that love them back. Like, that's easy. But Jesus says, I want the people of God to love people that may never love you back. I want you to love people that will never say thank you. I want you to love people that will never honor you back because that's what I did for you. I loved you when you didn't love me back is what Jesus is saying. I loved you when you were unlovable. I loved you when you were sick. I loved you when you were in your shame. And now I want you to do the same. You were once unworthy of my love, but I loved you anyway. Now you're called to be an imitator of me and to love those who are not worthy, maybe, of that love. So Jesus says, because of what I've done for you, because I've given myself up for you, hey, now you go do the same in your marriages, in your families, in your churches, and in your community. Like how radical and amazing and legit would it be if Redemption City Church became known for how we have amazing worship? Now, uh, how good the, pre the pastor exhorts the word of God? Forget that. Mm, how about how awesome our children's ministry is? Eh. What if Redemption City Church was known for how we walk in love? What if people walked around and said, oh, Redemption City Church? Man, those people love well. How legit would that be? How, because when we can do that and we become known as a church who radically loves even those who are considered unlovable by everyone else, what does the word say? It says that that is considered a, frag a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, usually we think of offerings as like writing a check or placing a certain amount of money in a basket, right? And, and don't get me wrong, that's a right and a true gift when we, when we put money in a basket and we give financially. But how many know that you can write a $350 check, drop it in the basket, and still be a first-class jerk five minutes later? You see, that's why some of the best offerings that we can ever give as Christ followers won't always be financially, but instead will be relationally and spiritually, particularly when the cost is high, the desire to do it is low, and your anxiety and your fear is running rampant by whatever it costs to lean in to that relationship. Like when we lean in to these type of high cost relational situations that like loving those who are difficult to love when we lean into that and we recognize that we were once difficult but what christ did for us we offer a sacrificial offering of love and we walk that out before the god of the universe as imitators of christ 
You see, and finally, Paul says in verse 2 that when we do all these things, it's like a fragrance. Are you tracking? When we walk in this type of love, we carry the smell of joy in a way that honors God. But here's the thing. It's radically attractive to unbelievers. You see, the world doesn't love like that. The world teaches that love is a stipulation, that love has requirements. But when we as the people of God are marked by Christ-centered love, it's radically attractive and it smells of joy. And I want the people of Redemption City Church and the people listening to this sermon to be known for how you walk in love and bring great joy to people's life wherever you go. I want to be, be a people that are known for having no limits to our love. Are you, are you tracking with me? No limits. I want us to walk in a Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through verse 23 type of love that is limitless. I encourage you to look at that text. So lean in with me. So when should your love end for your neighbor who continues to be a pain in your neck? Never. Like, or, or how about this? When should your love end for your children who continue to disappoint you with bad decisions and bad behavior? Never. Or how about this one? When should your love end for your parents who never stepped up to really be a mom and a dad? Never. Or, or when should your love end for your coworker or, or perhaps your boss who uh, continues to gossip about you or step over you? Never. When should your love end for your spouse who continues to make you feel inadequate, lonely, or all alone? Your love should end never. There is never a season or a reason to abandon walking in love. So who are we? We are a people called to walk in love as our direct and preferred course of action, no matter what occurs in life. We are to look to Jesus as the perfect example of loving those who were seemingly unlovable. We are to be a church known for sacrificing our preferences for the greater good of gospel reconciliation, a sweet fragrance offering to God. Okay, now here's the reality. Walking only in love isn't distinctly Christian because the whole world agrees that love is important. Like every organization today is saying love is important, that we need more love in the world. In fact, you may have heard many times that some people say that love is their religion. They say, I don't know about all the religious and all these different gods and different denominations, but my religion is love. I just want to love people. So Paul agrees as he speaks God's word and he says love is infinitely and critically important. However, this is what I love about Paul. Paul, knowing, seeing the climate, seeing how love is corrupted, knowing the danger of love alone, quickly attaches a strong exhortation in verse 3 for our holiness. And he affixes that holiness to love. Let's, let's look at that now in verse 3. Okay, so Paul's saying, hey, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, but, hey, love but sexual immorality in all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints that is that is big like can you see better now it's not only important to love but you have to walk in a way in which you are cleansed and set apart and set aside and consecrated for the purpose of God. Like, it's not, you can't just love how you want to love. Yeah, I want to love, I want to love lots of people. I want to love, I want to love that girl. And Paul's saying, hey, walk in love as Christ walked in love and be set apart in your holiness. You see, the world may agree that love is infinitely important and the world may say that love is a part of their religion, but what the world will not say is that holiness is equally their goal and their aim. You see, that's what separates us as Bible-believing, Christ-exalting Christian from the rest of the world. It's our belief that our love and our holiness are infinitely and uninterruptively powerful to God. 
and required by God. They are fixed together, love and purity, love and holiness. So when you meet someone, they say, I love my wife and I'm a good person and I do good things and I love, love, love and love is my religion and I'm at peace with the whole world and I'm at peace because I love people well and, and, and whoever God is, I'm at peace with him too. My response to anyone who thinks like that is this. You may be a loving person. You may be at peace with yourself, and you may think you're at peace with everyone, and you may think you're at peace with God. But are you sure that God's at peace with you? I'm going to say that again. Like, are you sure God is at peace with how you're living and how you're serving and how you're thinking and how you're acting according to Scripture? Because you may believe you're at peace with God but God may not be at peace with you. And the only way that you're going to know that you're at peace with God is through your sins being forgiven, through genuine repentance and reconciliation by putting your trust in Christ, therefore having a reconciled relationship with God. That's when we are at peace with God. Because the Bible makes it clear, if you're not at peace with God in that way, you are a child of wrath. You are a son of of disobedience. And that is a sobering, sobering reality. Now, there are definitely people that are not Christians, okay? There are definitely people that are not Christians that are excellent at loving. Sometimes there are people that are not Christians that love even better than we do. But listen, just because you can spot people in the world, don't, don't be deceived. Just because you can see people in the world that can love well from different religions or unbelievers that love very well. And even if they're more giving than you and they're more seemingly loving than you, it doesn't mean they're any closer to eternity with God because they're not. Not without holiness and faith, ultimately. You simply cannot detach holiness from love. It's a both and narrative. Imitate Christ by walking in love, but don't do those things. That's why Paul is offering us in verse 3, telling us, hey, sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper to the saints. He's not saying don't do it. He's saying don't even let it be mentioned in the same sentence with you as a Christ follower. Are you tracking? Premarital sex, perverse talking, coveting, crude joking, all these things are not even to be named in the same sentence with you. Are you walking in a way that says, I claim Christ as my king? Now, isn't it so interesting that Paul puts covetousness right in the same sentence with all these sexual sins? Like, why is that? I believe it's because Paul is trying to bring attention to how big of a deal covetousness really really is. Hey, pay attention. You should not go around wanting and desiring that which does not belong to you. I'm going to say that again. You cannot go around wanting and desiring that which does not belong to you. You should not want what you don't need. Are you tracking with me? You should not go around wanting what you don't need. It's a sin. You should not want what isn't good for you, that's a sin. You should not want what causes other people pain. Brothers and sisters, that's a sin. Now, why is all this so important? Here, here it is. Because if you keep going on wanting and desiring what you don't have and what you shouldn't be pursuing, eventually it's going to lead you to do some things and to start trying to get some things that was never yours to have in the first place. And if you go on justifying what you want and going getting what you think you deserve and you keep rationalizing and justifying and rationalizing and justifying, guess what eventually happens? Eventually, you're going to get exactly what you've been justifying. You're going to get exactly what you've been pursuing. And all this is going to be a covetousness. And it's going to lead to a dangerous compromise in your life. Every single time. And when you want what is not your, excuse me, and when you want what is not yours and you don't repent of it, and when you get what you should not have and you don't deal with it, 
And when you enjoy something that is dark and hidden and you don't confess of it, you eventually are going to get more than you ever wanted, more than what you ever asked for, and you will regret it in the end. You're either going to get what you want in reality, you're going to get it and obtain it, and you're going to pay for it greatly, or you're going to get what you want in spirit, meaning in your mind, lust, chamber, and fantasies, and you're going to suffer from it. And then all of a sudden, you're going to end up with a person or at a place or in some situation that you never wanted to be in. And you're going to be sad, and you're going to be despondent, and your Heavenly Father doesn't want that for you. So men, lean in. Hey, men, Young men, older men, stop going around coveting other people's wives. Are you tracking? Don't covet other people's wives. Now, you might be a young man saying, whew, this isn't about me. I'm not married. No, 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 young man, teenage boy, stop coveting other people's wives at your school. Um, Pastor Brandon, they're all 15 and 16. They're not married. Uh Uh-uh. Almost every one of those girls, God has planned in his wisdom to be married. Almost every one of those girls belongs to someone in the future as a wife. Stop coveting these women until God prescribes and describes and brings and you come into a holy, monogamous relationship. Stop coveting people's wives. Hey, ladies, stop coveting other people's husbands. He doesn't belong to you. Do not covet that which does not belong to you. We can't go around coveting other people's houses and stuff. Stop coveting people's homes. I wish I had that. I wish I had this. I want, I want, I want, I want. Don't do that. It's a sin. We can't go around coveting other people's children. What do you mean? Oh, come on. We can't go around coveting other people's children. I wish my son was a little bit smarter. I wish my daughter was like that person. I wish my kid listened like them. I wish my kid behaved like them. Do not covet other people's children. We can't go around coveting each other's jobs and opportunities. If I only had what Mr. So-and-so had, you don't have what Mr. So-and-so has. Thank God for what you have. Do not covet other people's jobs and opportunities. We can't go around coveting each other's lives and stories. Live the story that God has given you and find God's purpose in it. Let me say that again. Live the story that God has granted you and find purpose in that. And that's why we are called in Scripture to take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians tells us that. And just to keep things super clear, each and every one of us have this issue. I don't have a covetous problem. Yes, you do. You do. I do. We all covet and we have to watch it. We are living in a world where Satan is whispering to us and he's saying, you got to do this. It's going to make you happy. You deserve this. Your husband doesn't notice you. You should go do this for yourself. If only your wife would give this to you, you wouldn't have to go explore over here. You know what? You work so hard on your job. Your employer should, your employer should have already promoted you. It's okay to take a little bit more. Technically, you should have already received that. But here's what you got to do, faith family, when that happens. When Satan is whispering these lies of deception, when your flesh is appetizing and you're coveting that which doesn't belong to you, you have to filter your thoughts, you have to filter your desires, and you have to filter your wants through the biblical MRI machine of Scripture. We need to compare what God says about what we desire to what we want, and then we got to choose what God says. It's that simple. When God says we should go do things, we need to go do them quick, fast, and in a hurry. And when God says that we should not do things and they are forbidden, we have to seize and abandon those sinful responses and inclinations with that same speed. That's what verse 3 is telling us. It's warning us to flee, get away from it, flee from sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. That's the letter of the law. You, get, you got me? The letter of law says don't do it. Flee from it. Get it out. Don't do it. But here's the thing. I sure hope you understand the spirit of the law, folks. I hope you understand the spirit of the law as well. And that's a, and, and the spirit of the law in this is that God, 
He's so good. And his plans and his purposes for our lives are good. And the spirit of the law is that God wants to use you in ways that are only usable if you are reserved for him. The spirit of the law is that he's keeping you from pain. The spirit of the law is that he's keeping you from wrath. The spirit of the law, he's keeping you from depression and shame and regret and disappointment and weight. And the spirit of the law is that God knows that Satan's plan in these things is to kill, steal, and destroy you. Everything that's good in you. The spirit of the law in verse 3 is that God is seeking to lovingly help you and me. So whatever lie you have in your mind right now that you're trying to justify and compromise, whatever this covetousness that you struggle with that ultimately will lead into sin, if it's sexual deviation or it's some impure deviation, today's the day to ferociously repent of that and to say, my bad, Jesus, that's my bad, God. I don't want to do this anymore. Hey, what's your area that you covet? Where are you having covetousness? Say, that's my bad, Jesus. I'm not going to do that anymore. Holy Spirit, help me. And when you itch that ditch of, uh, lean into this, and when you are itching and you are leaning into ditching (laughs) your righteousness, and when you are massaging your heart and trying to rationalize things to be okay that are not okay, you repent again. I'm going to say that again. When you have that itch to ditch being righteous, and you want to massage your heart and rationalize things to be okay, repent again. That's the life, folks, of holiness. It's a constant repenting daily. It's a constant saying no to your old man and yes to Christ. That's what it means to be a true imitator of God.